Hello and welcome to Abnormal Mapping episode 83. I'm your host M and with me is my regular co-host Jackson. Hello. And today we have a special guest with us today. Uh, we have Ashling. Say hello. Hi. 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 How's it going? All right. Ashling's here as part of our come and be on the podcast thing. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, you can always go to patreon.com slash mapping and uh, show your support and be on and pick a game for us. Uh, Ashling, why don't you little, tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Okay, hi. Um, <laughs> I am someone who, for a long time, wanted to be a game developer. Uh, and then fairly recently, I decided that uh, that might not be what I want to do. So now I'm looking to pivot maybe toward like writing about games or something. Maybe do my own podcast at some point. Uh, cool. So yeah. Maybe this will help serve as practice for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's good fun podcasting. Uh, I like it. We do it yeah. so much. I better like it. <laughs> yeah, no, we do do it every week, multiple times. Uh, so normally we talk about what we've been playing uh, that isn't our game club. Uh, Ashley, do you want to go first and talk about what you've been playing? All right. Um, well, first I've been playing uh, the new Magic the Gathering Arena that just went into open beta. Because um, I am a big fan of the card game Magic the Gathering, and my game store near me closed down maybe a year or so ago, so I haven't really gotten the opportunity to play much lately. So I'm really glad that that came out. Um, it's a lot cheaper than the old online Magic ga uh, game they had. Uh, yeah, what is the uh, what is the situation with this game? Because I know there's been some. Um... I know there's been like magic games in the past. There's been like Duel of the Planeswalkers and what have you, but I, I can never tell what like uh, from the outside what uh, makes them different. I know that some of them have had like more aggressive card pricing structures than others. Some of them have just been you buy the game and then you just have all the cards in the game. Uh, so where does this like fall as a adaptation of Magic the Gathering onto video games? All right, yeah. So for a long time, if you wanted to play like quote unquote real Magic: The Gathering, where you like had the full card collection, like the full card library at your disposal and built decks, um, completely customized your decks, uh, the only option was Magic: The Gathering Online. Um, they came out with some of those other games like Duels of the Planeswalkers. Uh, they had those for a couple years, and then they came out with Magic Origins, and those were more user friendly. Like they had better graphics and they were easier in terms of like uh, input and stuff. But they didn't have like the f the real game, quote unquote. Like you couldn't, um, you didn't have the full library. You didn't build your decks either at all, or um, maybe you could do a little bit of customizing, but it wasn't like the full experience. Mm -hmm. um, so now, Magic: The Gathering Arena has every single card that's currently in the standard format, and then as more cards come out, they're gonna, you know, keep adding every new card that comes out. That's cool. Yeah. So. It's nice because you can actually play like uh, standard, which is kind of like the main format that people play. Uh, does it like bring over, um, like, do, does a card pack in the video game cost the same amount as a card pack in real life? How do they? Uh, it's, how it's do you pay for that? Significantly cheaper. Um, a card pack costs about a dollar in the game. Uh, okay. And they're like four dollars in real life, so that's oh yeah, not that's, too that's, bad. That's okay. And mm -hmm. I mean, I've. <laughs> There's a lot of disagreement over this, but I personally feel like the rate at which you get cards um, for free by playing is pretty decent. Uh, it feels like it's faster than Hearthstone, at least. Uh, well, that doesn't... Yeah, as seemingly a low bar. I hear people complaining about Hearthstone all the time. 
Yeah, I was on the Hearthstone train for about three or four years since like beta. I think that was like 2013. So maybe mm. almost five years now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never tried it myself, but I know it, it, um, like they changed some things over time that really annoyed people and kind of pushed people away. Yeah. It, um, I mean, that happens with every card game. Like they come out with yeah. new cards, new strategies, and sometimes people don't like the, the way the game is at the moment because there's like a certain deck they don't like to face or whatever. Uh, but Hearthstone seems particularly egregious in that regard. Is there anything like unique about um, Magic Arena? I think you said, or is it just like, or is it good because it's so just? This is the card game. It's here on your computer. Yeah, that's the main appeal. Is that it's okay. This is like the real card game as opposed to the other video games, which were like um, facsimiles, like like little portions of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's cool. I hope. I, I assume they plan to like keep this going for a long time as like the digital version of the card game. Then. Yeah, um, they said that they plan to uh, to release every new pack as it comes out, and uh, eventually it's probably going to mostly replace the old one, Magic the Gathering Online, which was much closer to real uh, paper magic in terms of like pricing, and uh, you even had to pay like real money to enter events and stuff. So mm-hmm. it was it was a good service if you wanted that, but it was very pricey, which wasn't good for me. Oh, no, it wouldn't be. Uh, I'm glad that they brought that down a little bit. Uh, the only other thing I played this month was uh, Soma, so I don't know if we want to discuss that or not real quick. Oh, do you like Soma? I know Em's played it. Em, em likes it a lot. Uh, Soma's great. Yeah, I think um, I think Soma is actually probably better if you just play it in the you-can't-be-killed-by-monsters mode, because I feel like the main appeal of that game to me at least was like the plot line was really interesting um it had like a couple good twists and like a couple good questions that it asked um but like in terms of the horror elements of it they weren't they felt kind of tacked on to me so i'm kind of i think it's kind of cool that they added that mode eventually Mm -hmm. because you uh m you played it with a mod right no, I, mode, I, but... this safe mode had just come out when I played it. That's why I oh. went ahead and played it. Oh, it was Alien Isolation you modded. To yes. Do that. Right. Uh, but yes. someone just has that mode in there. And you can still, mm-hmm. like, take damage if you blunder into a monster, which I did a couple times. But, <laughs> um, it, it is a much lower, uh, stress way of playing a game that, like, it is, like, the horrifying stuff is much more in the story and tone than it is, like, the thing coming at you, which is very good. Uh, especially since, like, I played Amnesia and Amnesia a Machine for Pigs, and I feel like that goes the other way and is much worse as a game because of it. Because um, that's much more about the being pursued in a way that Soma, like, the really scary stuff is in the story. Yeah, Amnesia so- Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask, is Soma from the, which which Amnesia side? Is it the Machine for Pigs people, or is it the... No, uh, no, it's it's just the, the Amnesia, amnesia people. people. Yeah, what Frictional. Did the, the, what did the Machine for Pigs... They did something else, I'm trying to remember. Uh, that's the they. Chinese room. They went yes. Oh, and... fuck. That, that, yes, right, I was going to say... <laughs> they no right, longer huh. exist. <laughs> they no longer exist. They went to VR heaven. Yeah. Everyone has gone to the VR rapture. <laughs> <laughs> Ashling, you were saying? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that um, that seems pretty accurate in terms of, uh, like, where I describe Soma as being a game where... The story was the main appeal, and the uh, horror elements felt tacked on. Amnesia was a very good game, in my opinion, in terms of its horror. Uh, I really liked a lot of the uh, puzzles, a lot of the monsters, a lot of the you know set pieces. But uh, the story itself, I couldn't care less about. It felt like it didn't even need to be there, other than to just 
have, give you an excuse to be there. Yeah, a machine for pigs sits in that weird middle ground where it kind of does both better than either end, uh, or does the thing the other one does like less good. But I don't think it's exceptional in either way. Um, I, I played it like right after I played Soma and was mostly pretty disappointed with it. Don't think the get best game from Frictional was probably Penumbra Black Plague, but I don't think that was super popular, so maybe not a lot of people played it. Uh- no but it definitely comes up as like i hear the pc gamers they mention the penumbra sometimes <laughs> they're like hey penumbra and i'm like oh, i've never played it and no one yeah, has but the pc gamers care a lot <laughs> it just it, like that game just came out like before people were playing computer games regularly i feel like it's part of the reason yeah. i mean i remember amnesia being like a big it was one of the first big like steam horror games yeah, that uh, like, sounds it was a cheap right. game on pc that everyone went and played on their pc it was also one of the first like big Things that pushed for, like, the Let's Play um, mm-hmm. to get really popular. Uh, I also feel like, weirdly, in a lot of people's memory, like, Cryostasis gets lumped in with Penumbra when people talk about I, it as early I, horror games. I was about to mention it, but I forgot what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, like, wow, what's that Russian game? Penumbra, because Penumbra is, like, fictional games aren't part of the uh, Eastern European block of, like, game no. developers doing. But I think of them in the same breath, which might be, I don't know, I don't know what that says about me, but I do think of them sim- in similar spaces. Cryostasis. Man. I mean, I saw someone talking about Cryostasis just the other day, as in, like, uh, Return to the Oberdin so, yeah, is basically Cryostasis, but nobody remembers Cryostasis because that game is almost a decade old now. I remember Cryostasis. Yeah. Let's play Cryostasis. <laughs> I'd love to play Cryostasis. I don't know if it runs on modern computers. We could figure it out. I don't know if it runs on old computers either. <laughs> um, I played through half of it on my old computer. Thank you very much. Okay, that's fair. Um... But yeah, Soma's great. Uh, and the safe mode helps a lot. I just wish all the games had something like that in it. Um, just because I'm a big baby when it comes to horror games in particular. <laughs> I love horror everything else, but games are particularly difficult for me to deal with when it's scary stuff. It's weird that you say that you're a big baby about this stuff because I like you are the biggest, coolest, bad person compared to me, the actual baby. Well, yes, you're the actual horror. baby. <laughs> like across all media, I just can't handle it. I just can't handle horror. Um you you would probably like Soma though, so you should. Play Soma. Yeah, I mean, I, I've uh, watched videos of that and seen the ending and been like, yeah, no, not. I too have played Swapper. Um, <laughs> it's a little different than that. <laughs> That's reductive. I too have watched every episode, every transporter episode of Star Trek. Again, reductive, but yes, sure. <laughs> yes, no. Uh, I don't mean I like it is reductive, but I mean that as a more like I like this genre. This is a goofy like thing I can get down with more than this is like some other things. That was me being mean. It's like yes. five uh, uh, That's cool. What did you play him? Uh, I have been playing a bunch of Hollow Knight still slash again. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I, no, I, do any more no, Hollow Knight I don't. I don't know. I don't know what I could tell people other than everyone should play Hollow Knight and stick with it until you learn how its like navigational systems work because it seems to be everyone's sticking point. Um, that game is a much better like combat game than it is a platformer. So please go in knowing that that's the thing it does well because that's what you're going to be doing most of. Um, mm-hmm. Because eventually the platforming is trivialized and the combat definitely never is. So, um, that stuff's great. I, I, you know, it's a good game. Good game. That's a, yeah, it's a good game. I mean, I feel like I, I've talked about it every podcast lately, but I'm done probably for a good while. So, free. It'll be back. You're not completely done. Yeah, I'm not. You know, also, I'm not I'll play it. Games. I'll play it at some point. Then I'll talk about it every week for six months. 
Uh, you might. What if you hate it? Then we then we can never talk I'm about it. I'm not gonna hate it. Okay. <laughs> Come on, Jackson. What have you been playing? Uh, whew, what do I what do I bring up? I have been playing. I know we don't talk about new games, but I'm going to talk about a new game briefly. Um, I played a bit of uh the new Crayola game. <laughs> the new hot new Crayola game called Crayola Scoot. What uh, is this game? It is the latest game from Climax, uh, which is the developer of like Silent Hill Shadowed Memories. Um, they did those like Assassin's Creed uh, 2D Mark of the Ninja games, uh, like quietly doing weird licensed things that people kind of like. Uh, and now they have brought that to Crayola uh, and made a game that is Tony Hawk's Cross Platoon. Um, and it's pretty good. It's very slight. Uh, and it costs way too much for me to like recommend it as a thing you should buy. It was 30 bucks for me on PC. Um, which is uh, bananas. Like, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, I was having a bad night, so I bought it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. It, if you want a game where you go do tricks, do grinds, and shoot paint out of your scooter, uh, then it does it. It's very good. Um, I actually really like a lot of how it simplifies um, the ideas of Tony Hawk into a game of this scale uh the way it works is um it feels like a tony hawk game in the way you go on your scooter and the way you do tricks and land them but all the controls is on the stick like skate there's no like difficult inputs to do tricks uh and your all your jump buttons on the triggers so you have access to all buttons at all times um and it just feels much uh like feels very stripped down and good in a way that a version of this for kids would be um very easy to pick up and play as like a party game that's clearly what they've like angled it towards uh and yeah it just it's just, it just very good and i'm surprised uh that it, it exists and glad that they were able to make make a cool thing out of whatever brief they had or however i don't know how this got made whether they went to crayola or crayola went to them um but it it is good i'm glad they're like looked at splatoon i'm like yeah this is good this is a good way to do multiplayer stuff also remember how tony hawk kind of had that with graffiti what if we like combine those into one mode like it I see how you get there. It's actually a very short walk. Uh, if you remember what graffiti is, uh, I don't know how many people here know the graffiti mode from Tony Hawk. Nope. No. Well, it's uh, it's, a cl- it's a classic multiplayer mode. Graffiti. No one graffiti. No one. Mm. The skateboard game I remember most fondly is still Metal Gear Solid Two. <laughs> I like the the uh, song in the Metal Gear Solid Two skateboarding. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, graffiti is a mode where um, every time you trick on an item, uh, on an object, you like that object becomes your color, uh, and you have to do a bigger score on that object to take it back. So it becomes how many uh, objects in the environment can you tag? Uh, it is the best multiplayer mode in Tony Hawk. I'm sad that the only Tony Hawk is the um, that mod, uh, where the only people playing it are incredibly good. So I can't actually enjoy Tony Hawk multiplayer because no one's my skill level at that. They're either like terrible because they've never played Tony Hawk, or they keep playing Tony Hawk, so they're like gonna kill you at everything. There's no like middle ground because it's not an active game anymore. But oh well, that's my that that is my feelings on a Crayola Scoot. It's a cool thing. I'm glad I played it. So it's just like Sean White skateboarding. When you explain graffiti mode, that's the only thing I thought of. <laughs> I guess they did copy that from that. It is kind of like that. They're not. Um... Oh, you, you've thrown me off by making me remember Sean White skateboarding. <laughs> Where you liberate <laughs> a city a from advertisements by graffitiing billboards. Tab signs? Was yeah. that the thing with that game? Yeah. Yeah. Like a game all around like the shops. 
weird yeah. licensing with that game. God. Show them white skateboarding. Been a while. <laughs> yep. Uh, with that, I think we're going to move into our game club. So we're going to play some amazing, totally original music for you. And we'll be back on the other side to talk about Vampire the Masquerade, Bloodlines. Our game club this month is Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Uh, this was a Patreon suggestion. This is uh, chosen uh, by Ashling. Uh, we have been picked to play this. It is the PC RPG from 2004, developed by Troika Games, published by Activision. Uh, it came out on my birthday in the in Europe, which is November 19th. Uh, how old were you? Like t- 11 two? years old. <laughs> Two? This came out on my 11th birthday. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. I would have been in year six and listening to Green Day. Oh, I don't even know what came What came out in October of 96? That's my birthday, 11th year birthday. Mario, I guess? Mario 64? It's probably yeah. around there. That's Mario, that's Mario 64 time. Yeah. Um, that's a much better birthday present. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, so this, this is... Uh, Going off of the Vampire the Masquerade playbook uh, by White Wolf Games, uh, this is a CRPG, of course. Um, this is Troika's second uh, vampire game. Um, mm, and I don't think it's Troika's second. I think it is, is the second. I thought they made the other one. Did they not? I think that was someone else. Nihilistic Software? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, there you go. Uh, we won't even fix that. I'm just wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this game uh, then takes place in the early 21st century. It is the present day Los Angeles, uh, multiple settings, Santa Monica, Hollywood, uh, downtown Los Angeles and Chinatown um, and various surrounding areas. Uh, you start off as your created character who has been sired by someone uh, without permission, breaking the rules, laid down by Prince LaCroix, uh, the petty tyrant of the Los Angeles area, and uh, your sire is killed, and then you are basically tasked to be uh, Prince LaCroix's gopher as he navigates coming into Los Angeles and trying to like take out the take over. Uh, pre-existing districts that have powers in them, mostly run by uh, the Anarchs, uh, which are a bunch of, you know, rough-and-tumble anarchist kids, uh, led by a leader named Nain Rodriguez, who is, uh, like, encroaching on what Prince LaCroix thinks is his territory, and all of this revolves around a big MacGuffin called the Ankaran Sarcophagus, which is rumored to contain one of the ancient vampires of your opening it supposedly will trigger a vampire apocalypse, and uh, you're going to go and track it down for LaCroix so no one else can get it and trigger the apocalypse, maybe. Uh, and you go through these areas, you talk to people, you find out that there's a third big faction of uh, the Chinese, the Kuai Jin, uh, 
who are led by their leader named Ming Zhao. She's like a princess come to like, we also should have a foothold here. You vampires don't know what you're doing, which, uh, you know, we'll talk about because they don't. don't. (laughs) Uh, And interfaction warfare happens in which you make all the choices as it all plays out because this is an RPG. Uh, And that's that's the plot, basically. Yes, that is the plot of this game. Uh, so, Jackson, tell me about the development of this game a little bit before we get into ta- talking about the video game. Uh, so they made this game. This game is made on the Source engine. Um, and if you know anything about 2004, you know that's when Half-Life 2 came out. Uh, and Half-Life 2 is the Source engine's big game. Um, and they were not allowed to mention this game to anyone until Half-Life 2 had been revealed. And it was definitely not allowed to release before it. It ended up releasing on the exact same day. The first time Activision could just throw it out there, they did. Because that's how it was. Uh, so they chose this weird engine for RPGs, started making the game, um, and completely went overboard in terms of scope. Uh, and the Wikipedia page makes it seem like this all just happened inside the black box of the development studio. Activision walked in a year later and just realized there was no producer and like no one had been in steering the ship. Uh, and though they brought in David Mullich and he was like, oh God, we have to make this game into something we can ship. Uh, and on a tight deadline, like they were like, oh, okay, the only way to get us done is to have a tight deadline. They put everything they could into it and shipped it on the day Half-Life 2 ship for- and it sold basically nothing uh, and went on to be a... Uh, a cult game uh, it comes up a lot in conversations about uh, like RPGs you never played that are actually super good it is mentioned alongside things like Fallout New Vegas uh, and Planescape uh, it's not as good but it does have uh, similar systems so they understand how it like gets into that uh, uh, view in the culture um, especially when you played the first few hours uh, and that is the production of the game on a on a wider on on like on its wider scale. Uh, I think we'll continue to talk about the production because there's way more details on this Wikipedia page. It's a lot, uh, but it also um, it'll be better to talk about that as we go through the game. Yeah, uh, uh, Ashley, so, you picked this game for us. Uh, yes. Do you want to tell you about us about your experience with it and why you picked it? I well, my first time playing this game was way back in uh, probably 2005. Uh, so I was like 14, uh, and so I have a lot of nostalgia attached to this game, especially because it got me into Vampire the Masquerade, which was my first experience with uh, tabletop role-playing. Um, so yeah, uh, this is, whether or not it's an amazing game, it's a game that's kind of like important to me, just in terms of where I was in my life at the time, and the influence it had, and stuff like that, so... That's cool. Um, did you did you revisit it for this? I don't know. You didn't have to. Uh, yeah, I played probably that. played this game ten times, including this month, um, for the sake of this podcast. Cool. Damn, that's a that's a lot of times. <laughs> uh, it was my first time. It was M's first time as well. We both never touched it. Yep. Uh, we had a question uh, email wise. I might as well just answer this now about how to play this game in 2018. Uh, yes. Someone bought the Steam version and couldn't run it. Uh, if you play the Steam version or any version, really, you really need to go and download uh, unofficial fan patches that exist that will fix the game up, fix all the bugs. And then uh, most of them will add in the content that was cut for this game last minute, including like a like perk and uh, like a trait system that characters have plus or minus stuff uh, to add flavor to your characters. Um, 
if you have this game on GOG, most of the, those patches are already applied, um, so you can just run the game, and it'll, the additional content won't be there, but the game will run totally fine, minus, you know, a few bugs or glitches that you would expect from a game of this vintage. Jackson, I know, had audio problems that needed some fixing. Um, yes, uh, but all of these problems have been, like, accounted by everyone, so if you Google, you go to PC Gaming Wiki or something, there'll be a short walkthrough of, like, what to add into an any file, etc., etc., to fix this stuff. Um, and so I guess we'll just talk about our experience. I am of two minds. You know, Jackson, I'm going to let you go first, because I think you're probably going to be the most negative person here. I'm going to be the most negative person here, and I, I don't dislike all of this game as a thing, um, but I did have a strange time through it. I think the RPG side of it is interesting, um, and uh, especially in the first couple hours, it's very cool, um, but I think it collapses much... Uh, like, it collapses after, like, four or five hours into... Um, something kind of uh a little rote um in terms of the rpg stuff i think that uh it suffers from how much it was clearly designed to be about choice um your character uh, the, the entire plot hinges on uh all these factions and who you sympathize with and what this means but because they like you can create your character and because your character is um introduced to these uh, like different factions by LaCroix literally murdering your sire uh, and then barely not murdering you and just making you uh, do all his shit for him. Uh, a lot of the like slow burn character stuff falls completely flat because you already hate this guy from moment one um, and like you would never ever, like no one's ever going to side with him. Uh, it would be much, you know, better for you to have just been explicitly uh, a cop for the Camarilla who works for him, because uh, then it wouldn't have been so weird that what you do the entire game is be a cop for him. Because uh, you can only like really make big choices at the end, so it, um, uh, by making you such a blank slate, it makes the story fall a little flat. Uh, and the RPG stuff in the first couple areas is pretty interesting, um, but it works best as like a detective game, uh, as you try to find things out. I think the best uh, times I had was like um, searching computers for passwords and hacking some things and finding some things in the environment and everything matching together into like puzzles. But as the game goes on, it becomes less about that and more about combat. And also as the game goes on, um, getting into a computer, for example, is do you have a password check or not? Is your stat high enough or not? There's much less environmental exploration uh and like dynamic progression through quest lines based on like how you explore the world it feels like a series of walk to person and do you have the like statin thing if yes say this if no say this uh which i guess is all of these games but it is stuck in this weird place between an adventure game and rpg and none of it really comes together which makes sense because after six hours you just fight people for the rest of the game and they like did not have the time and i get it i like you look at that development thing, yeah, I see how this happens. It's not their fault. Uh, but it definitely left me coming away kind of like cold from the game. And that's my that's my, my take as a whole. Uh, worth noting, uh, friends of the show, Adilacina and Heather Alexandra, both really like this game. And both of them mentioned that the back quarter to half is uh, rough. Heather said, mm -hmm. oh, I, ne I never go past the sewers when I replay this game. Because it's always it's bad after that. Oh, it sure is. Um, which I understand. Uh, I'm generally a little more positive on this, um, mm -hmm. though I don't disagree with most of the things you said. Uh, for mm -hmm. me, I came into this um, expecting like a really janky, almost Fallout kind of experience, and what I got was like the best version of Deus Ex: Human Revolution. Um, yeah. 
the way the hub world works, the way you are sneaking in and hacking stuff and talking to people reminds me so much of that. Um, and because it's on the Source Engine and they did all this work, they picked the Source Engine because of its facial animation stuff and they wanted a game that was in 3D. Um, it has some of the best conversations system that I've seen in a game of this type. Like, I don't think you get much better in terms of expressiveness uh, and general, like, everyone's a voice and everyone is portrayed on the same level of quality until you get to something like Witcher 2 uh, in terms of this space and what kind of games mm. there are. Um, that makes sense. Because, like, even Deus Ex, uh, which is the game I think of the most here, Human Revolution specifically, I'm just going to say Deus Ex, everyone knows what I'm talking about, is, like, here are the hero characters and you have conversations with them um, and you pick things kind of Mass Effect style off of, like, a wheel. But then when you go out in the world and talk to people, there's so many people that are just, like, nothing characters. Like, oh, this is, like, a basic NPC Model 3 that we used for this person who's going to give you a little bit of a quest. Um, and Vampire feels much more fleshed out in terms of the characters it has, which is probably why they were drowning in overwork, because there's a lot here to interact with. Like, it's a very dense, small area in a way that uh, there's a reason a lot of games don't choose to do this. Um and if they do, it's like Yakuza, where they literally use the same area for two decades because it's cheaper than doing anything else. No sign um, of not using it yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I ended up really liking this goofy, like, early aughts, late 90s, Matrix, uh, like, Angel, the TV show, Blade aesthetic of just silly latex vampires running around L.A., going to nightclubs and dealing with interpersonal politics. Um, I think the conclusions it brings about in terms of like how the story wraps up are relatively bad. And uh, we'll get to that. But the part where you're just going around like helping people or investigating the seedy underbelly of L.A., uh, I think is generally really good. Um, I like the Hollywood area probably best of all, which is the third area you go to. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the quests there are interesting. I think it's a vision of like the Anarchs holding down L.A. It, like in they're like oh we've been in here in hollywood for like a century because we've been here since hollywood became a thing um is much more compelling than nines like rebellious punk kid bar version of the anarchs um yes. and so i was much more interested in seeing how hollywood ran its own affairs and didn't need the camarilla um because the Camarilla generally, uh, I don't know if this is true of the game because I've never played Vampire particularly, but the Camarilla in this is depicted as basically the most useless governing body possible. Uh, and so, so much of this game is about an ineffectual, uh, not quite democracy, but like elected governing body versus also ineffectual, like youth leftist organizing and the like the answer is somewhere in the middle about a lot of it kind of really annoys me but we'll get into that especially when we talk about the chinese stuff because oh my god <laughs> yes uh, we will so ashley as someone who's played this game uh 10 times how do you feel about the plot and story and stuff like that uh well i agree with a lot of what you said um in terms of if i was going to recommend this game to somebody it would never have anything to do with the overarching plot which might as well not be there the whole sarcophagus bit um 90 of what's appealing to me about this game is like the moment to moment uh the little interactions with different people seeing what their stories are seeing you know their interactions with other characters in the game um there's a lot of like individual interesting plot lines that you could get into discussing um, but that's what makes discussing this game pretty difficult, I guess, is that you can't really just go through and talk about each plot, like mini plot that you enjoyed. 
Uh, we can talk about a couple. Yeah, yeah, we can mm-hmm. totally pull a couple. We should talk. We should definitely talk about some like favorite side stuff. Because yeah, if we just talked about the uh, awful soccer for the stuff, we'd just be complaining because <laughs> all of the good things is in the side of this game. Yeah, I love this game, and I still don't like the main plotline. So <laughs> yeah, uh, what's uh, everyone's favorite side quest? Let's go around. Um... Uh, Jackson, how about you go first then? Oh, fair enough. Shit. <laughs> well, you'll uh, probably have the least number to pick from as someone who was a little more down on this game. Um. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I. I don't have my one good answer. I think the stuff um, with like the the uh, the very very early stuff with um, what's uh, um. What's the night? No, I know what it is. Uh, it's uh, the the quest uh, with the guy uh, in the hospital uh, and the um, what whoever it was at the bottom. The, the, there's a ghost like TV show doing filming, uh, and they all get eaten uh, by someone that lives um, uh, Pisha. Um, under, Pisha that lives under yes. the hospital. Uh, but that part of the quest isn't why it's good. The part of the quest that's why it's good is that you have to go and find where he lives. Um, so you go to the place where you don't know what house he's in, uh, and as part of going to him, you like bumble into other quests uh, through this like vertical, uh, f- it's like just literal structure of flats. Like you go in through the vents. Um, there's only one of the doors that you know the key. Like you get the key code from the computer, uh, and only one of the um, uh, one of the uh, what's the term? Like one of the flats has like a key code you can actually get in. But then from that you can get to a central shaft that goes between the different flats, and this links to like another quest line on the way. Um, and that like level of spatial interaction in design is like my favorite thing about this game. I think like when you have to get a key card to get a different like when all the different systems mesh between each other rather than being a system or which happens with a lot of rpgs which is did you put points into uh, like the keyboards or did you put points into the hacking uh, into the into the lock picking like that is often what it means to progress in like these kinds of rpgs um but i i feel like that quest was the peak of like uh moving through spaces by gathering information about that space design that is my favorite thing about this game so that'd be my answer uh, I think for me, it's not even like a side quest. It's part of the main plot. I, I really liked the stuff with the Vorman sisters, uh, Teresa and Jeanette, who mm. you interact with in your first area in Santa Monica. Um, they are presented as like these two warring sisters who own the Asylum Nightclub together. Uh, Teresa's like a uh, buttoned up businesswoman vampire who is like trying to establish herself as the person who could run this place if LaCroix wants someone to run this place. Um and is happy to do it and is very uh, reserved and ruthless about taking care of stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeanette is basically like Arkham Asylum version Harley Quinn before that game ever existed. Uh, They just lifted Jeanette wholesale for their version of Harley Quinn. It's ridiculous. Um, Who is like hates Teresa is all about causing chaos and just like living her decadent vampire life. Um, and as you go through and do stuff for them, you end up siding. You, you can try to balance them, but probably you end up siding for one over the other. And then there's a point where you realize that they are the same person uh, who has, has like lived this traumatic life uh, and has like a dissociative identity, which is all kind of bad in the way that like horror and um, like mental health stuff is in this genre. Um, but the thing I do like about this story is that it gives you really early on. Um, a sense that like vampirism is not necessarily like a great time. And I don't think the game does a very good job of that. Otherwise, <laughs> um, 
because LA is constantly just at night and there is a whole vampire society with its own, like you go into various stores and everyone knows you're a vampire and it's not a problem. There's like a whole, uh, framework of, uh, societal, like, organizations to deal with being a vampire doesn't honestly seem that bad in the world of vampire the masquerade um every zone just kind of goes about their lives and there's some new rules to follow but it's not a problem and the vormans are the first people you meet that like vampirism is a real bad state for them uh and they are dealing with a situation that would probably only make sense for someone who has uh like supernatural powers in the way that the vampires do. Uh, and I found like interacting with them and bringing their story to whatever conclusion you did, I ended up siding with Jeanette because I thought she was more interesting, um, is, uh, really good at giving you like a sense of the world in a way that some of the other like heads of organizations you find don't like nines is barely a character, but, uh, sure the Voriman sisters are clearly like, the character built to be the one you interact with first and best. And I think a lot of the best writing went into them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree. Uh, I remember the reveal to that plotline being the moment. I was like, Oh, right. This game's stupid. Not in a bad way. <laughs> um, but I definitely was like, I wonder where the stuff with these sisters is going. Um, I'm going to go find out this. And then I was like, we're the same person and we're like abused <laughs> and look at this nightmarish world that we live in and look at the, And I'm like, Oh, right. This game's, dumb as hell I yeah the, with that the the pulp tropes of this sort of genre uh coming out is so like stridently in this in that moment is really good because the game is like uh, and his reputation is uh uh held up as like serious rpg about talking to people um and i get how you see that from the systems but the writing is like nothing on the like uh like, you look at games like Planescape and you see this very serious writing about big themes. And this has, like, similar themes uh, at the heart of it than a lot of these RPGs. Because a lot of them tend towards, like, you know, we play Kurt or 2. Weird libertarian to... treatises. Yeah, yeah it's like, okay, we're going to talk about all these politics and choices, but it all comes down to how everyone's fucked and bad and you've got to make the work. And, like, thinking that's deep and smart. And it actually comes off way better in a game that's just dumb as rocks throughout. <laughs> like, the, it plays better here uh, than it does in Kurt or 2, which is way too serious and earnest about that garbage that i can't in, like there's no dumb shit in Kodor 2 yeah um, i mean this game has a whole like side quest about a snuff film uh and yeah. it's great <laughs> like anytime there's like a horrifying snuff film plot you know you're dealing with some bad aughts pulp there's there's a really funny um uh side quest early on where you have to go meet a, who's someone who's obviously like a cannibal uh and he's like oh yeah sure uh, i think he's, he's a plastic surgeon is how, what he is actually um and he's like yeah oh yeah sure just come in just come downstairs and i'll show you where the, the surgery is obviously leading you to his lair but then you walk in and you go into his lair and you're like man this is creepy but then you go through a door at the back and then you go downstairs to more of the lair and then there's another downstairs for more rooms <laughs> and every time you're like it's like an extreme waiting for the jump scare but it comes to the point of like this is ludicrous and eventually you get to the end of it and fight him but it just like the amount of times you go through the door and there's more of the lair <laughs> i have to imagine that was intentional it was really funny um actually what about you what is your favorite like quest from the game uh well to avoid saying something that's already been said uh i do love the there's two quests together uh called a plague for the angels and fun with pestilence uh wherein there are 
some vampires who are intentionally spreading diseases among humans, because if a vampire feeds on somebody who has a disease and then feeds on another human, that human uh, can contract that disease. Um, so these are called plague spreaders, I believe. Unless my plague bearers. Plague bearers. There you go. Um, so in this mission, uh, you can receive it from either or both uh, the leader of the Tremere or the le- uh, one of the heads of the Anarchs. Um, and if you don't tell either one that you're working for the other, then you can actually do it for both of them and receive a reward from both of them, which I think is a cool little detail. And then uh, mm. I think the that that general concept of a of a plot for a side quest was kind of cool. Um, and then uh, the characters, I mean, the, the obviously the fights themselves are awful because this game's combat is not very good. Um, but I, th- I thought all all three of the characters and the way that like um, they all try to like convince you that like you know to like be okay with what they're doing and everything. I don't know. It just the way it plays out is is generally interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember not that quest specifically, but the way it is introduced as being one of the moments that I kind of soured on the game. Um, I was talking to the uh, to the Anna. I forgot her name. Damsel. But I'm talking to her. Um, we put him. Uh, damsel. Damsel. Yes, damsel. That's it. Uh, I was talking to Damsel, and she's basically like, "God, uh, the Camarilla—they suck. They just want to like. I can't believe they killed your side. They want to kill someone to preserve the status quo. That's evil. Anyway, go kill this guy. Go kill someone who has vampire AIDS so we can preserve the status quo. And I'm like, <laughs> hang on. And like, the situation of the plague virus ends up being they're doing it much more intentionally and are actually bad. But the way like that conversation flowed, <laughs> and I was like, oh right, this game isn't actually capable of having real." Uh, like radical factions within its game who actually think good things about its um, politics because it's too concerned with making them all shitty, petty, uh, like power players at all times because that's deep. And that was the moment I realized it, like that's what it was doing. And I made me bail me out because I like obviously. If you tell me which one are you gonna like, if you ask me who are you gonna <laughs> side with between like the Camarilla uh, and this other faction, who's like, I don't like uh, this weird cop organization. We should just be able to live for ourselves. I will always side with them. But the oh, the portrayal on the Anarchs in this game sucks. I think, I mean, for the most part, <clears throat> the both uh, both the major uh, the Anarchs and the Camarilla are basically led by idiots. Um, both Nine and Lacroix. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Lacroix, the main reason that nobody has killed him yet is because he has, like, one of the strongest vampires there is as his bodyguard. But past that, I think almost everybody hates the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I played as a Ventru, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna side with the bad, because, like, I knew enough going in to know that Lacroix existed, and he's clearly the, like, most bad person in this situation. And I was like, I'm gonna side with him, because I never do that, and let's see how that plays out, and found myself unable even to, like, <laughs> brain genius justify his terrible positions, because he's just bad at his job. Can I? Yeah, there's no, like... Uh, vampire being like we are vampires and this is what we must do because like evil is right for us there's no like moral uh argument to uh vampirism as an indulgence right no one is making that he just sucks he just sucks knife just sucks uh zinkway have a little bit more of like a position um but they're also incredibly racist as a concept because <laughs> this like this game stuff in chinatown is like mind-blowing and how like this is only 2004 i just feel like it's 1996 <laughs> the the uh stuff in that game like 
it's straight up like shadow warrior type stuff which i guess that came back and people like it so what do i know <laughs> uh so yeah um we might as well just talk about it. so you the fourth area you go to is chinatown because you find out there's like some chinese vampires who are not technically vampires they're like the quajin which uh operate a little differently um are tied up in this and know regarding the sarcophagus and maybe know where the key is to it um and you end up talking to ming Zhao, who is the like chinese priestess princess of these people um so you go to chinatown she speaks perfect english because she's your main point of contact and is from china and is very glamorous and just looks like she is just wearing full like chinese costume regalia everyone else in chinatown is doing some various parody of like awful 70s 50s to 70s like chop socky nonsense it's yep. bad <laughs> yep um and, and specifically, they recognize that there are different types of Asian racism because you find a bunch of Chinese people who all speak with bad accents. And then you find the one Japanese hunter girl who is just like a schoolgirl with a katana and a gun. And she speaks a whole different level of racism in her Englishy Japanese, like, pigeon English as she tries to get you to help her on a quest. It's not good. It's all really bad. It's all really bad. Um, and... Even, like, granting, right, this stuff's racism is a problem. I was like, okay, I'll hear Ming Xia and see what's going on with the Chinese. And then the main plot reveals that she was working with LaCroix in, like, a plan to team up and, like, get the sarcophagus, make sure no one else could have it, and then, in, like, make sure that LaCroix stays in power. And then she'll gain some influence and some land because of it. Um, and then LaCroix basically, like, backstabs her and she comes to you and tells you all this stuff. And then your options are join the uh, Kui Jin, which we'll talk about how that is clearly marked as a bad choice. You can't, there's no like good version of that mm -hmm. or side with any other, any of the other factions. But those factions are in the middle of teaming up to make sure that they're going to go fight the Chinese in a way that like the Anarchs explicitly, at least in my ending, talked about, we hate LaCroix, but we're definitely going to team up with him to get the immigrants out of town in a way that was really uncomfortable. Uh, I so I teamed up with the Anarchs, and because the, I like the the period where supposedly the Anarchs were ready to kill uh, all the Kui Jin, like that did happen briefly in the plot. But I never had a real conversation with it because uh, like nine was out of town and I was like running. Um, so when I teamed up with them, I was like, uh, they were like, oh, we've got to deal with both of these problems because we need to be, you know. So it wasn't as explicit about oh, we need to like kill the immigrants, but we you do go and kill the immigrants. You do like you go to the. Um, like uh ming Zhao's base and you like have to assault them like there's no i don't know like they're definitely like oh they're both bad and it comes up across as just terrible like yeah so <sighs> for me because i was kind of lacroix aligned i did i wasn't siding with the anarchs at all so when i went to talk to damsel to find out where nines is because nines is currently in hiding at that point you have to basically like, convince her to tell you where he is and by d to do that the only real way the game has is tell her about uh the like Chinese plot to overthrow everything and try to downplay LaCroix's thing in it. You don't even have to do that. You could just say LaCroix teamed up with them and then it all fell apart. And she'll just be like, well, damn, I hate LaCroix. He caused all this trouble, but we're definitely going to side with him over the Chinese. Uh, and it just right. reads really bad as this is like your, this is like the progressive faction. Like the one that's like, we're going to try to look out for everyone because the Camarilla is not able to do that because they're so top down about things. Yeah, that conversation for me went as, like, we know, like, you have earned our trust with us. We know you didn't really betray us. Uh, here's where Nines is. It's going to be okay. Like, none of that came into that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, 
all of the stuff uh, with that came at the end of the game when you have to go take out both factions who are looking for the key uh, who are like vying over the sarcophagus uh, but yeah it sucks uh, there's no actual reason for them to be so anti like we just we hate the asian vampires why are they here like as deep as it gets there's no reason for this it's not interesting um and even if they're even if you could just chalk it up to normal old xenophobia the game never gives you avenues to like check against that it is just granted that you will see them as an existential threat as like compared to other factions uh and there's no way for even your character to say no that that's not really what i was talking about y'all are racist stop please like it's just a granted fact of the universe that the chinese are a threat and you have to treat them as such. No one doesn't do that. There is a lot of uh, moments in this game where you would the th- you would think there'd be an obvious thing to say to like avoid this situation, but the game doesn't allow it into its worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole situation with like nines gets uh, like has to flee because you identify him at a house, even though he's kind of shady and obviously not nines. Uh, and there's no way to not tell Lacroix that like something weird's going on about this you have to like because the plot has to happen and the o- the only ways you can do this is like rat him out to the cops uh, like how polite you're going to be about it yes it's like yeah i love to choose <laughs> love to make choices in video games and i understand that like just, a lot of this is informed by restrictions and they didn't have a lot of content for the back half of this game so they can't do like full-on diversions from the plot they already wrote but even if your character could push back a little harder than they do, I think it would go a long way, but instead it just feels like the presumption of who the player is and what the world is, is totally informed by this very one-sided view of things that I found really distasteful. Um, and and specifically all the Chinatown stuff. Um, yes. Like riding on nines, whatever, like that didn't bother me. You're working for the camera. There's only, and, uh, if you ever push back too hard against LaCroix, he can just like dominate you, uh, until the very end of the game where he can't. So you basically can't not tell him things when he insists that you tell him things. So it's easier just to do it. Um, uh, because yeah, if you, if you are just like a total brat to him, he'll just dominate you and get whatever information he needs out of you. Um, uh, because the game doesn't have that sort of like, you know, uh, variant path stuff, which is fine. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it really rubbed me the wrong way in that last area because it just ends up feeding into really gross sentiments uh, that, especially in 2018, feel uh, mm-hmm. really icky and bad <laughs> when it comes to game spaces. <laughs> yep. I mean, like, it is probably worth saying that Vampire the Masquerade uh, had a new version that came out recently. Uh, that was just like full of dog whistles and awful shit. Like, was I, it vampire? Talking... I didn't know. I just know White Wolf is like that. I didn't uh, know it was vampire. The recent Vampire Masquerade relaunch had like uh, uh, 88 references and like a bunch of shit. Oh, great. Uh, like, it was real explicit about it. Uh, so, not feeling great about that, you know? They, they removed them and they claimed to have dealt with the person or people that were involved, I think. But I think that seems pretty relevant because. The one person we know is involved that's problematic is still on the team, so it's hard to say if they actually got rid of anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a shame because, like I said, the the like early mid period of this game I really liked a lot. I think it's really evocative. Just run around a town like solving these problems through these dialogue systems. Uh, I played um, like uh, I played a stealth 
focused character mostly uh, because I didn't like the combat. So I would just obfuscate and sneak around stuff. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the obfuscation is not a thing that adventure can do. Let me just say, I'd use the console to give myself all the powers. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's how I'd recommend anyone plays this game because the actual combat bit is really hard. But uh, obfuscate is basically a Metal Gear Solid cloaking device over you. So you can just do whatever you need to do for most of the game. Um, and as a stealth game where you stealth into a place and then speak to someone who is like willing to talk to you and get stuff done. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, like there are multiple places where I would talk to the doorman, uh, be seen into an area, then stealth through all of the like combat zones and then get to the end. And there was someone else who would talk to me as long as I had stealth through that area. Uh, and whenever I can solve a problem like that, I was very happy with it. Um, uh, I like that sort of like, multiple play tasks way of playing uh in the development they said that like they specifically designed areas uh like we're gonna have an area here we need to make sure stealth is taken care of and then we can deal with like melee combat then we can deal with guns to make sure there's enough ammo drops and stuff uh so most of the game is built to be stealth throughable uh until they just get to the end and start throwing you could probably stealth through the last areas of this game but there are so many enemies that i it would not be prudent to do so Every no, it would not. Uh, every major set piece area, if you don't um, have, especially the early ones, if you don't have sufficient stealth yet, which you often won't if you haven't been getting enough XP and putting it all into stealth. Um, mm -hmm. Notably, the warehouse and the uh, boat sections are very difficult to stealth through. With like, if you don't have like rank three or higher stealth, uh, probably. Yeah, I uh, I had been um, not. I hadn't been like modding my stats. I started just giving myself the stats I needed as I played through the game. But when I got to the warehouse, I had just been playing the game straight, and I it was impossible, literally impossible for me to get through. Uh, I had to turn on God mode and just get through it that way because I was I couldn't do it. I could not stealth it. I didn't have obfuscate. I was playing in Bruja, uh, like I, it was not a thing that I could have done. Very, Maybe I could have figured it out eventually, but it, I just couldn't do it. It's a very strange difficulty uh, curve there with the. The warehouse specifically, mm -hmm. and also like, the, the like this is a big problem with RPGs, um, as it pertains to, we're just gonna translate uh, a tabletop game and put it in a video game, because the way that breaks down is that you have to go through the content that's been written. There's no GM uh, adjusting the story for what characters you've made or no like tabletop games game design is like we are making tools with which you can make something rather than we are making something very concrete mm -hmm. uh and so when you have a situation where you literally have to choose whether to put points into talking which is the way to enjoy the game or you put points into like stealth or combat which is the way to progress through the game like making those two things a choice that the player has to make like do you want to enjoy this or do you want to not die like it's it's, it's bad it is a bad way to make video games um which is why when we play these RPGs, we often just like use the console because if you don't do that, they are less fun and way worse. Um, uh, I think specifically, there's also the fight with the um, early on uh, with the guy with the sword uh, that I don't think you can like avoid in any way. Um, so when I had a character that was all of their points into stealth and uh, talking and you know computers, uh, I was forced to fight that with. Usually I have some points in the combat, but this time I didn't put any, and I was still forced to fight that, as far as I know, and uh, yeah, it was quite difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, like the game being how it is with that is uh, it makes a lot of that stuff weird and hard. Uh, I would recommend anyone playing it just use the console every time. 
Uh, yeah, and then you can kind of pick out how you want to play. Like, I played uh, mostly using, like, Dominate Powers, even though I had the option to do, like, Seduction and stuff. Um, I thought it was more interesting to kind of limit myself, even if I had all the options. Um, it's just one of those, like, when you play cheating-wise, you still can create your own limits if you want. Like, I tried to stealth through as many areas as possible until the sewers where it stopped being prudent because the little head arm guys, little flesh geodudes, are too hard to fight without, uh, or too hard to stealth by, past without waiting forever. Um, yeah. Uh, but the, the way in which your stats influence the combat stuff, or the conversation stuff, I think is really good. I like being able to reverse engineer passwords and observe. I really like the way that, like, your perception shows what's highlighted in the world. I think yes. that's a really good thing that more games should take, especially since every game relies on, like, detective vision at this point. Like, if detective vision was a stat you needed to build up and uh, it could be unreliable if your stat's not good enough, I, I think that would be really interesting to explore. Yeah, I think uh, my favorite things about this game were the detective stuff. And if they just made like a very explicit detective game with this kind of like engine and scale, that would have been excellent. Yep. Um, I can't think of like, I don't know what would be similar. To, I know you're like, I need to play the Blackwell games, like just go full adventure game with it. Yeah. It has the puzzle stuff, but it doesn't have the like, you know, a sense of spatial exploration because it's, it's, like, it's closely a 2D adventure game. I don't know what the. I guess I could play. I guess I need to play The Witcher as another thing I need to do. Yeah, and like, there's always Deus Ex, which I don't think is well is well written, but is very similar in times in terms of scope and like activities. I will probably give Human Revolution another shot now that you've talked about this because I yeah. like that game is a dumb writing rise, even like more than this game. Yes, I want to hack into computers and shoot guys in faces, but yeah. they can't see me. So it like, is it is the, it is like the self serious version of this game. Great. Yeah. It also um, unfortunately did have the issue that this game had where uh if you didn't put any points into combat abilities, you were still forced to fight people. I think yeah. that that changed in the um I mean that didn't change, but like I remember the, the original version of the game right had the um You had to had kill the, the bosses. bosses. Yeah. Like they were from a di completely different studio. <laughs> yes. Uh, they redid them for the updated version of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, which i think i think that's in the, i think it's if i've got it on steam i've got the good version i actually don't know if that came to pc i, know it I think i think you do i think that just automatically populated into your thing okay cool well yeah it'll, we'll it'll say director's cut right on it and i'm pretty sure i have that so you probably have it too there's things about the like there was things about this that uh reminded me of just talk i heard about the second deus ex game which apparently lent harder into like the second deus ex game, wait the second uh, modern the one second, or the second, the old second one? new one the really rate the racist bad one yeah okay uh, but a, like apparently a lot of the spa- spatial design of that was really interesting and in that um their city had no map screen and every dialogue was like you got to turn left at this and go past the greenhouse and i'm more... really i'm really glad this game didn't have a map yes uh, i think i think the downtown area is poorly designed it takes forever to get anywhere but i really like the like by the end of the game i've learned all of these areas and know where everything is mm-hmm. uh for sure like that is the like um because you mentioned yakuza at the start of this like discussion and like definitely a lot of the things i like about that are things i like about yakuza but uh on a smaller scale right mm-hmm. um like coming to understand a space it's definitely best in santa monica which is like by far best designed area of the entire game uh because like i think there's interesting stuff in hollywood but it's also a straight line it is yeah it's just a straight line <laughs> <laughs> like uh santa monica isn't too big but it's also there's enough little different there's there are like different corners different areas of it like this is where the club is this is where my house is like ha- things have spatial relation in that in the way that the other areas didn't get the polish and the design work uh to get to that point just because there's not enough time it's got a thousand 
hours to work on the facial animation. We've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you both used uh, console commands, I think. Uh, yes. Did either of you actually go through and play the Ocean Hill Hill part? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, did. yeah. Uh, I played through that just relatively straight because uh, I had heard about it, but I, you know, I was like, I'm just going to go and see what that is. And um, that was a really cool area. I liked it a lot. Uh, and then Jackson, you went through and were like, this is too spooky. And I having had a no time. idea it was coming. So one, I didn't even get that spooky a version of it. Yes. Um, so yeah, the thing that you did is you looked up a video. Uh, I want to shout this out. Uh, it is called... Uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines Ocean House Hotel Walkthrough How Not to Get Scared by a channel called Red Queen Effect and just a lady nicely walking you through this area explaining all the triggers for spooky stuff. It's, highly recommend it. It's a fantastic video. I want all Let's Plays to have this very down-to-earth chill. This is like... Uh, it is not this level because it's also a joke, right? But it is it is not dissimilar from uh, We Could Be Heroes, Sonic Heroes, uh, Sonic Let's Play. <laughs> um... <laughs> um. But uh, what's that called? Some yes, even mode? if even if you play even if you play this level, the explanation of all the triggers and what happens in them, I played through this this whole space and didn't see the axe guy once because I no. was just kind of walking through uh, and not paying apparently that much attention. Uh, saw the other ghost, like the lady ghost, uh, and but didn't see the axe guy, which was interesting. Um, I think this area is very cool. I like all of the spooky stuff in it. It was amazing to me because this whole ocean house is lifted almost entirely beat for beat in the Hearts of Stone DLC in Witcher 3. <laughs> Uh, there is another spooky house you go into and there's like stuff of like, this is what happened in the past and this is what happened in the present and ghosts are pointing you in directions. Uh, and it is very explicitly just this again. Like not, not, um, not like eh. they're making a reference. Like they knew they, they knew. I feel like, like it, yes. I feel like I, if you played both of them, it's impossible to not see the connection. Mm-hmm. okay that's interesting and cool mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean that video is great because yeah like i said like it definitely helped because i got halfway through the um i actually got through most of the actual spooky parts yeah you uh, were through everything but like the end which is more like a, a hazard avoidance than spookiness i bumbled my way into the mansion i got the like i went, fell into the basement and then it was only like halfway through the basement that i started going creeped out just because i just like was just doing it without exp- like i'd already got used to the um subtle level of like creepy as aesthetic rather than as intentionally spooky uh, of yeah. the game so i thought the game was just doing that so i didn't see the like there's, there's one very explicit scare that you're meant to see earlier in that which no one ever sees because you obviously go up the stairs first uh, <laughs> uh which is if you go to the left you see the ghost you turn right um and then you turn behind you and the axe guy is right there like it's you know like the dentist guy from bioshock uh that classic turn around ghost there scare we never got that so i got a much more subtle build uh, and the one that got me was the uh like get out written on the wall as the the lights blinked uh, i was like nah, i'm gonna i'm gonna stop and i'm gonna watch this video and just go through with the scares uh, but that video is amazing uh, i like just breaking down the construction of a video game and how scares work uh yeah. I, I like it a lot it's a very good video it had like it only has like six thousand views uh because you know people need to people like us or like me need to not be scared at things uh but it also functions just as a very interesting look into like behind the scenes and how things work it's great yeah sorry for that kind of came out of nowhere no, but i just felt like if we didn't talk about that the scene that section then someone would uh mm-hmm. would be like <laughs> i am told it is the uh 
famous um like the famous section from this game yeah it's not my favorite part but it's a lot of people's favorite part i think uh, I did note, if you go and look at the console commands, there is a, like, in the list is just, here's the thing to put in to skip this area. Yeah. Uh, kind of like the fade in Dragon Age, like one of the most popular mods is to skip that because it's a very lengthy scripted area that doesn't have role playing in it. It's just kind of the thing you go through, which is great the first time. Uh, like, I like the Ocean House a lot. Uh, I like it more than the fade in Dragon Age, but it's worth. But if you ever, like, replay Dragon Age, you never want to go through that area again because you don't gain anything out of it. It's just a very long, complicated area. And I could see that being true for the Ocean House, but I think, one, it's not particularly large because nothing in this game is, and two, it's very good at being, like, the roller coaster horror ride that it is for the brief period it is. Yeah, that's specifically why I asked if you had both played it, because there's that console command to skip it. Yeah, no, we did not do that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I still went through it because I, I, mean, I needed to go through it just for the game. I wasn't going to skip it mm. uh, for a podcast. The one thing we didn't mention is the end of the game, uh, you get the sarcophagus, whoever opens it up, opens it up or doesn't, and there's nothing in it <laughs> except a bomb. Yeah, some C4. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, so because what do you think at the end of the game? Because so, I think so the thing that happens is that Smiling Jack took the like corpse out of it and put the bomb in under command of the cabbie who is probably Kane just to see if people would like just to see how bad society would react to the coffin being in here as a MacGuffin and punish anyone who would do the bad thing of opening it up uh but it ends up trivializing everything you've done as like all oh, these people just want to see the world burn in a way I was not <laughs> here for at all yeah, it is the peak of, like, you know, the classic, this kind of RPG, like, nihilism twist. Oh, all of these people just were playing politics for each other, and it was all pointless. Isn't this that, like, profound? And, like, I can tell that's the intent, but this game is already so, like, slapped together by the end that uh, there's nothing in it, and then it was pointless. Bye! <laughs> like, it just feels, feels like a parody of how ridiculous this game is in terms of how little there is at the end. It's, uh, uh, it's worth noting that the Gehenna event was no matter what going to happen in terms of like the Vampire the Masquerade canon in 2004. So this game was basically made knowing that this was when the world was ending. Um, so they could pretty much write whatever garbage they wanted. And it was like nothing mattered because the world was going to end regardless of what happens in this game. Wait, so the Gehenna is still true? Oh, yeah. In the, uh, well, okay. They they, re- they undid it now. Um, so you can go back and play <laughs> Old World of Darkness because nobody liked New World of Darkness. Um, but at the time in 2004... Uh, they were, the Vampire the Masquerade setting was coming to an end. All the Old World of Darkness settings were coming to an end because they were rolling out their new uh, Vampire the Requiem, etc. Um, the New World of Darkness games. So canonically, at the time at least, in 2004, it was going to be the end of the world in this setting, uh, regardless of what happened in this game. So Fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> this definitely plays like there's no actual threat to the end of the world. Uh, because this was all pointless and people just like playing politics in the city uh, and like acting up the idea of these threats uh, for power is how I like thought the ending was but apparently the, the world was also ending unrelated to this mm, yeah <laughs> uh, uh, excellent stuff I actually find it interesting I, I don't know if uh, I read it somewhere online that uh, the uh, cab driver is Kane or is Oh uh, yeah, so I was curious what the deal with that guy was, especially when he shows up glowing, like radiating dark energy at the end of the cutscenes mm-hmm. or whatever. At the end, and I looked it up, and the general consensus seems to be that it's Kane, but a book contradicts that Kane could be there 
at the time, but also apparently Kane has the ability to project his spirit out. So it's the spirit of Kane while his body's in a cave somewhere. Uh, and then I stopped reading because I stopped caring. <laughs> so there's two uh, different things. Um, one is that if you play the game specifically as a Malkavian, which I know neither of you two did, I did on this playthrough, uh, there's several pieces of dialogue, um, specifically when talking to the cab driver, and I think one or two when talking to other people, that point to the cab driver being Kane. And then there's also the fact that in the game files, the cab driver's sound effects are labeled as Kane. So. Cool, cool. Um, but I think that's a good point to... Um... Like uh, we've kind of said a lot of uh, a lot of what we need to say about this game, um, and then with a good good discussion. And if you have any any more uh, final thoughts that you want to mention before we move on to questions, Ashling? No, I mean I, I I think obviously some of the later stuff uh, gets pretty bad, and the overarching plot isn't the best. I think this game still, at least the good parts of it, did a good job of adapting the setting. Um, it felt pretty true to what Vampire the Masquerade is in most respects. Um, it had some things that like fans of the setting could appreciate, like the cane bit, um, like the discussion of the antediluvians, and uh, how one of the major plot points is people wanting to diabolize the one that's in the uh, the uh, sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with it, um, despite the bad parts of it, and that's all. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that was a good. Uh, that was a good. T- we have um we have a question about the uh, uh the like tabletop RPG stuff because I was going to ask that, but I think we'll do that as we go to emails. So let's play some more incredibly licensed music. Um, but to be fair, the rest of the music is licensed. <laughs> okay, that's true. I guess all of the songs in this game, except that one massive attack song, and uh, license. And I found a quote. He literally says they were marrying to this, but they didn't couldn't get the rights. They wanted me to write something similar. I thought I put my own stamp on it. He did not put his own stamp on it. <laughs> 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 um, I guess they got the rights to all the other songs. Yeah, uh, great soundtrack, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that Massive Attack song rules. They're not yeah. wrong. <laughs> I think the rest of the soundtrack's pretty good, too. Like, it's all of an era, but it's a good era, so... <laughs> I, too, enjoy Blade. time for questions if you want to send us any questions or comments about any of the games we play or games in general you can send them to podcast at abnormalmapping.com we have one email from frankie jackson do you want to read this This is about tabletop playing uh i do want to read this i should have had it loaded earlier oh okay i didn't realize (laughs) you didn't have them up uh hey y'all since you are playing a game based on tabletop game do you like it when tabletop aspects are put in video games like character sheets dice rolls etc uh, Frankie, I will also extend this. Uh, first of all, I want to ask uh, uh, Ashley before we talk about the um, specifics in video games. As you have played Vampire the Masquerade in a tabletop, how do you like the tabletop game as as it compares to in video game form? I'd like. I'm very curious about that. All right. Well, the tabletop game has uh, a lot of the stats. Like the stats page is is pretty much the same, but there's a few extra things that you can 
uh, get. Like, um, there's you can increase the generation of your character. You can uh, set up like what kinds of connections they have, things like that. Um, but otherwise, like the the stat page that you have in this game is mostly the same one that you're working with in the tabletop game, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the major complaints that I think a lot of people have of Old World of Darkness is uh, the way the dice rolls work. Uh, it's not ideal, um, but I mean, I think that's a problem that a lot of, uh, especially older tabletop games have. I think that's why a lot of recent ones have just moved to the 2d6 for everything setup. Um, other than that, uh, I think it has, you can you can certainly do a lot of uh, combat if you want to, especially if you're playing like a Gangrel or a Bruja, but it has a lot of uh, political aspects to it. It has a lot of uh, talking to people. It has a lot of like stealth aspects, like, you know, like any, anything, everything you want in terms of like a good tabletop RPG, like you can basically build your character however you want and assuming you have a good GM you can he, he can set it up for your character to be able to get through any situation so yeah I mentioned some of this in the uh, discussion that I'm not anti-tabletop aspects being put into video games but I do think that a straight adaptation of them without consideration for how a video game affects um, the way you play like the video game is a series of preset things no matter what the character does uh, a tabletop thing will have an actual human being running a campaign who can make adjustments on the fly who can set up the campaign like I mean, it depends how good they are right but th- there is a possibility for uh for maneuvering and for specificity and scenarios that there is not in a video game you always ha- have to do the same levels because those are what exists uh so it just makes the role-playing space a bit different um, uh- one of the things they said in, in the development stuff is that originally the like combat was much more deterministic by dice rolls, but they had situations where like people were firing guns at enemies and missing because the gun check did not beat the armor check. Alpha uh, protocol. Yeah, Mass Effect One. <laughs> yep. Um, just in a way that like you can't do in video games. Um, and have people like accept that as a reasonable thing in a game where they like it plays like a 3D action adventure game, right? But you have to make it work that way. Um, more generally, I the thing I really like and the thing this game does a bit, but I wish it did way more, is when conversation stuff relies on your character sheet. I wish there were way more divergent like quest lines and conversations you could only have if you have a stat of X or you are this uh, clan of vampire. Um, game does a little bit of that. And there's like specific hideouts that I know you can only get if you are particular races that get them. Like there's a Nosferatu area. Um, I think you can stay in that creepy mansion that you turn right all the time in if you're that clan, right? The Tremere? Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so. I have I don't know if I've ever played a trim here. Oh, okay. Um and uh th- th- there just isn't enough of that stuff uh for me to like I would just wish there was more of that. I think a lot of um I a plane we talk about Planescape all the time, but Pillars of Eternity has a great system where like when you go to do something, there's a array of like choose your own adventure style choices based entirely on your stats. Like, oh, you have this equipment so you could try climbing it or you have this perception so you can look at this problem and see like another way around. Um, and it's a thing I just wish was always in these RPGs because so many of the stats end up feeling geared particularly to combat scenarios and not enough of them apply broadly in the way that you would if you were playing on a tabletop game where being like strong might allow you to do interesting stuff in stat checks and conversation. 
Uh, like even Fallout does a lot of this stuff. This is just stuff that came later as this style of RPG became more popular. This yep. might be a controversial opinion, but I think Fallout New Vegas is one of the best examples. Um, there's quest lines where if you have certain perks, like if you have the cannibalism perk, you get a special option in the, the quest line involving cannibals, uh, things like that. Um, yeah, I love, I, I think New Vegas is a great game. So yes, I am with you on this. But yeah, uh, th- this game definitely, it has the ability for your uh, stats to influence certain choices. Um, like if you do the, early on you get the uh, bomb, I can't remember what it was called in game, um, The for Mercurio. If you have high enough seduction, then you can just, uh, you know, the, the guy will let you basically suck his blood and then he'll die and then you get the, the stuff for free and you just walk out. Whereas um, if you don't have that, then you have to try and navigate the uh, conversation properly, which is much more difficult without that. Or you can just, like, shoot the place up. <laughs> that is cool. Uh, we have another question. Yeah, from Thomas. I'll read it if you want. From Thomas, yeah, I'm trying to find... So I was... There was me hesitating as I clicked on the wrong question. Okay. Uh, you can read Thomas' question. Uh, okay, this is more generally about video games. Yes, this is uh, about Vampire now. Thomas wanted to ask about the history of prestige AAA games and what the term means to us. Um, when you look back at history, did AAA games always exist in some form... Uh, they mention uh, Jackson's article on God of War and the point that this uh, game is just another one of the same AAA game that has always existed. Um, they were thinking about this in relation to labor practices, how games like PS1 Final Fantasy games were made. Do those technically count as prestige? Do you think that the abusive labor conditions that produce the AAA games of today have always existed in some form in this industry? You could just look at the production of the game we're talking about today, uh, where they were like, we there was only like a month where we didn't work overtime. <laughs> Uh, yep, they sure do say that in this thing. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, AAA games. Jackson, do you have a good perception on this? Um, so, no, I mean, so, like, there are two questions here. Uh, one of them was the actual question, but the, th- the pro- thing I think about is actually not this. It is the first time I heard the term AAA games was in the System Wars forums on GameSpot, where it didn't mean what it actually means. Uh, and AAA meant uh, like uh, it scored a nine or ten, and then AA was a game that scored an eight, and then A was a game like that. They thought that like there was an entire culture of people in video games who thought that that meant how big the game was based on how high the score was. Wow, uh, I did yes, not know no. this. I've never hung out there. Uh, another time, I will go into the history of System Wars, but I don't want to actually bog down this question uh, with that. I just needed to mention it. Um, in this, I don't really know. Uh, I assume uh, it was like around the PlayStation PlayStation Two era, uh, just because of like you know you hear about the, how, what Final Fantasy VII did to to video games, how like the CDs allowed more data, the addition of cutscenes, the additions of scale. Um, but it was a it was like, like games that had like prestige and were more expensive already existed. Like you look at Link to the Past and you look at a random SNES game, right? Like this this divide between the people that had the money and people didn't was always there in some form. Yeah. But specifically, I think like with uh, Final Fantasy VII, you specifically got a game that the commercial, the TV commercial for Final Fantasy VII is all of the cutscenes, which is about seven minutes of a forty-hour game, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that game being sold on cinematic presentation 
as the thing it could do that other games couldn't afford to do. Uh, never mind that Final Fantasy VII uses three separate sets of character sprites be- or models because they didn't have the money to make that all the same thing <laughs> because they are already like running that game to the hilt in terms of like how much they are going to spend and how difficult it was to make. Uh, multiple discs. You know, you get to the era of multiple disc games uh, where they just had the money to keep making the video game, right? Um, and filling it with cutscenes and content. Um uh, I, I want to talk about the like labor stuff, like kind of separately to this. Yeah. Also, so no, but everyone... also like this is this is the era where Final Fantasy VII existed, but also you could get very weird small experimental games, uh, mostly from Japan that would come out for like twenty dollars because CDs were cheap to make. So you could get your like Guitaru Man, which I guess is a PS2 game, but you get like your Parappa the Rapper, or you could get Vib Ribbon, uh, Monster Rancher games that are trying weird stuff with the format that you hadn't seen before. Um. And those games stood in very stark contrast to AAA games. I feel like it was the PlayStation era specifically where you started getting people who like, I, I, the big games exist and they're fine, I guess. Everyone can play their Twisted Metals and their Final Fantasies, but I like these weird games over here. And that just got even more pronounced on the PS2 because it was the, like the biggest console on earth. Everyone had one. So you could get your Mr. Mosquitoes and your Katamaris right up against I, your Final Fantasy Tens. I think that AAA also has a term... Uh, exists because originally those small games weren't necessarily like indie games, right? Like we didn't have the conception of what indie game meant as a thing. Yes. Uh, so it wasn't like here are the big games, here are the indie games. It was like sometimes big companies would put out small games because that's the team that worked on them. Like there wasn't as big a divide yet between, you know, like now the like big publishers will put out about four games a year and they're all massive. Uh, while everyone on Steam competes for a tiny little sliver of the rest of it, right? Like uh, video games are not in a healthy place. I- could have the timeline slightly wrong here, but I think in the late 70s and in the 80s, the majority of games were probably made with very small teams, like a couple people. And then oh, yeah. by the late, I think the first, uh, hilariously, the first major budget game that I know of, or like, you know, like um, game with like real backing was um, E.T., which uh, they, they made a lot of, a lot of that game and it didn't go very well. I mean, there was there was licensed properties with a lot of money and not a lot of time that existed before that. That was just a big one because it didn't it it came right on the cusp of the the crash in general. Um, okay, like you can look at your like Atari Spider Mans and Supermans, like those games existed and had similar teams. Um, but like the idea of like this is a, a huge team of people that makes a game is kind of the thing that only happened once you had like you have to create all the models for everything in like a computer design program it's the proliferation of very specific tasks that came with like late 90s cd yeah uh, base probably games, just... right like doom was made by four people half-life was made by like an army yeah you could probably just follow the uh the progression of epic games from jazz jackrabbit to unreal to gears of war and that'll give you some idea of how the triple a yeah. industry changed over the years yeah no, like the amount that it is Talking about the labor stuff, like the thing uh, with labor in video games, and this isn't like an academic opinion or anything, it's just like me looking as an idiot from the outside. But if you want to look at how it's changed uh, and how the way the abuse of labor has changed, um, so even though uh, video games in the 90s, right, were a lot of. Uh, you hear people talk about the culture and everyone overworking and like these tiny teams of like 12 people in San Francisco cramming into a house and making video games and that's like a nostalgic thing for uh, like a certain sect of people uh, games now if you're like working for a big video game company are, like they have been so completely and totally there is no 
there's no team, a single team that works on Assassin's Creed. It is like an army of people across the world. Uh, the like scale of the companies forcing these conditions on people have like gone up exponentially in the last few decades, um, and will like continue to do so. Like the one, the the smaller ones stop existing and the bigger ones get bigger. And uh, at some point you would think that would be in- unsustainable, but I think we passed that point ages ago and it's just still going. So I don't know. It's, it's bad. It's a bad industry. Uh, it is interesting though, that you see games that are considered like the AAA games that like specifically you look at a game coming from Nintendo, v- manageable team sizes that reflect games of like 15 years ago. Uh, because they have all the money in the world and all the time in the world because they own their own platforms. That's true, but I don't know. Zelda was made by a lot of a lot of people. But not, like, like categorically more people than made Mario. Uh, I, Zelda was definitely made by categorically more people than made Mario. Uh, Jackson, as someone who's seen the credits for both those games, don't think that's necessarily as true as you think it is. I'm reading into Zelda was comment- Zelda was not made by an Ubisoft level of people. No, not an Ubisoft level of people, but like I am, there are comments made about the development of uh, Xenoblade Two because Monolith worked on Zelda. Yes, about yes. what like making the map for Zelda did to that team. Yes, and Nintendo came in and they were put on the Zelda tank, and the everyone had to go and finish the game. Like Nintendo sure. did this too. Uh, but you, you still have games that are like present as AAA games that are made with more manageable team size. It just comes out of the very boutique houses that can afford to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Like you know, you look at Arms. Yeah, you look at like anything Platinum does. Uh, Platinum, the only one that has apparently figured this out, and I mean they also like all of these teams. Right? There are a lot of these teams for a long time that uh, operate on this scale, work based on like whatever deal they have with publishers, and like put out a reliably interesting thing. But they are always like Scalebound fell through, and it almost tanked the company, and no one could have predicted that fucking Yoko Taro would save them. Like yes, <laughs> no one in a million years would have actually think that happened, but it did. And so Platinum get to keep going until another big thing sinks them. Like it could happen at any time. Uh, that is the, the there's no sustainability there. Yep. Telltale doesn't exist anymore. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah. It's a bad. It's a bad business out there. Telltale is kind of That's a weird thing time. because The Walking Dead got super popular, and uh, they had a couple other good games that came out like um, The Wolf Among Us. Uh, the Tales from the Borderlands was really good, but then a lot of the their later stuff that came out. I played one or two of them, and they had cool licenses behind them, but they didn't really feel <laughs> like very good games to me personally, at least. Well, the, the thing with the Telltale stuff is, after Walking Dead, like Wolf Among Us and Tales of Borderlands are good games, but nobody bought them, and a lot of the writers left because there's only so many years you can put up with Telltale's reportedly very bad management. <laughs> yeah, uh, it it's weird, and it just because of what Telltale was, it's just like. In addition to obviously the labor stuff and like the people who manage Telltale are criminals and uh, bad unions now, but you just think Telltale games aren't going to exist anymore. That is that that is an entire genre because they made so fucking many of them that just disappeared overnight, uh, which is just wild to think about. Like that, people say like, oh, maybe the space will be filled by you know blah blah. It, it won't. Like the people make similar things, but that's not how you know. Like people aren't still making skateboarding games because Tony Hawk and Activision stopped. Things change. Things like, yeah. move away. Like Don't uh, like, Nod and David Cage will still exist, but they only put out one game every like five years. <laughs> Like Telltale games were enough to be an entire genre and they are gone. And that is just a thing that is true now. Uh, and maybe you'll see like uh, 
you might see a, a couple of more explicit like imitators it, out of the millions of people that got fired um but I, I don't you know it's a weird thing video games are weird uh i think that's it for questions so questions. next month we are having another guest we uh are. our friend olivia should be coming on and we are I think are playing the entire oeuvre of Nina Freeman. Um, if you don't know, Nina Freeman works at uh, Fulbright right now, but uh, she was a game maker who made games on her own before that um, and continues to make her own work. Um, we will be looking at all of the games that she particularly made. Uh, we already covered Tacoma and uh, you know, that's more of like a group effort. Uh, if you want to find all of those games, you can find a good list on Nina says dot. So, um, and that will get you all the games there. Most of them are available for free. A couple of them are available for very low amounts of money. Um, and we're going to talk about all those coming up next month. I'm very excited for this. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for uh, guesting, Ashling. I hope you enjoyed. I hope it was a good time. Thank you for the game as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yes. <coughs> um, is there anywhere people can find you? It's time for plugs. Uh, I'm actually, I was off Twitter for a while, but I'm just getting started back on Twitter. Um, my handle currently is Heart Jane Doe, uh, because uh, the handle that I use everywhere else is currently taken. So until I can try and get that back, yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, and you can find us at the usual places. Jackson is at Head Falls Off. I am at EM underscore Being. Um, you can find all three of us hanging out on the Abnormal Mapping Discord. If you just go to abnormalmapping.com, there'll be a link to it. It's a good place. We, you know, it's a small community, but we like talking about all sorts of stuff. Uh, everyone's in there all the time. Um, it's good. I think. It's I good. think that's it. I think we could do a light plug today. Yeah, that's it. We did it. We finished the podcast. Yeah, so uh, thanks everybody. Of course, you can support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash normalmapping. And we'll be back next month with more video games. <laughs> <laughs>